The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. Losing streak. Futures lower again. Could it be five down days in a row for the S&P 500? Boeing in the spotlight again. It wants to ground some 777s after one suffers a dramatic engine failure and drops parts over a Colorado neighborhood. The Biden administration signing off on more emergency resources for Texas. Power still out for thousands of homes as the fallout and the blame game ramp up. More good vaccine news. A big new study showing a dramatic drop in sickness. This as COVID cases continue to crash around the world. Elon Musk calling into question the valuation of Bitcoin. Does the market really care? It is Monday, February 22nd. This is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world you might be watching. I'm Brian Sullivan. Thank you very much for joining us here on CNBC. And here's how your money and the global markets are setting up their week. Futures, they are lower, although you've got the implied open fair value about flat. We'll see which way this thing wants to go. Either way, Dow futures on a pure basis down 175 points right now. This after the S&P and NASDAQ snapped their two-week win streaks last week, with in fact, the S&P snapping it in pretty dramatic fashion. Down four days in a row, all four trading days last week. Of course, Monday was a holiday. Rapidly rising bond yields, one big concern. We'll get more on that with a guest in a moment. Also, we are still focused on oil and gas as Texas slowly picking up the pieces from last week's deadly storm and the biggest forced power outages in American history. Crude oil right now up fractionally 59 and a half bucks for WTI crude. Brent a little higher. Also, checking the price of cryptos. Bitcoin once again hitting a new record over the weekend, over 58,000. We are well off that mark right now. We're at 54,900, but at one point, we were over 58,000. That just shows the continued volatility of some of these cryptos. Ether, down about 4% as well. We've got two big stocks that you need to watch today, Boeing and United Airlines. This after a United flight bound for Hawaii made an emergency landing in Denver shortly after takeoff on Saturday. The Boeing 777's right engine failed dramatically. United says that it will remove, temporarily, 24 of these planes from service. Boeing is recommending airlines suspend the use of 777 jets with the same kind of engine. And the head of the FAA says the agency will order the inspection of all of the jets. We'll get a bit more on this later on. All right, let's go now. Worldwide stocks in Asia kicking off their week's mix. Japan's Nikkei, though, able to climb nearly half a percent. Japan, by the way, don't tell anybody quietly one of the hottest stock markets in the world. The Nikkei 225 up 18% in just three months. 
and getting a trade, a look at the early trade in Europe as well. We are seeing markets there mostly lower. The German DAX down about one half of 1%. Now to the latest crisis in Texas. As the Biden administration taking new steps to help millions of residents after that winter storm crippled the state's energy systems. Bertha Coombs has more on that and some of this morning's other top headlines. Good Monday morning, Bertha. Good morning, Brian. The White House has approved a major disaster declaration for Texas as clean drinking water is now a key issue there. The move unlocks federal funding for people in the 77 counties in Texas. The White House says it's working with Governor Greg Abbott to expand that aid. More than half the state is experiencing disrupted water service with boil water notices in effect. And the mayor of Houston is calling for the state to pay for what in some cases are astronomical electricity bills some residents are facing following last week's power issues. A new study out of Israel, meantime, revealing the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine appeared to stop the majority of recipients there from becoming infected. According to the country's health ministry, the vaccine was 89% effective at preventing infection of any kind in people who received both shots of the treatment. That data, which has not been peer-reviewed, also revealing the vaccine is 94% effective against symptomatic infection. And Elon Musk questioning the price of Bitcoin after its market value surpassed $1 trillion collectively. The comments coming after Tesla announced it bought $1.5 billion in the crypto and revealed it plans to accept it as payment. Musk tweeting over the weekend, the prices of Bitcoin and Ether do seem high, followed up by an LOL. I don't know. If I were a regulator, I might want to look at the timing of these comments. Don't you think, Brian? It's it's listen, if you're owning the asset in the bulk like Tesla, his one of his many companies does, and you're sort of tweeting about it at this level. I mean, let's be clear. It moves the market. He, He either moves the market through individuals, Bertha, or the computers, the algorithms, whatever, pick up on what he says. Right. There, there definitely seems to be an impact of his tweets. Yeah, which I've got to think people are watching right now, especially after they declared that position. Yeah, Bertha Coombs, we'll see you in a bit. Bertha, thank you very much, and good morning. All right, well, your next guest says that that good vaccine news versus Brachin, perhaps a sooner-than-expected reopen-led boom in the economy, are one big reason investors have been buying into one group of stocks. For more, we're joined by Patrick Palfrey, senior equity strategist at Credit Suisse. Patrick, good seeing you. Listen, we are, we're not making too light of it. Obviously, 500,000 people in the United States have passed away from COVID. There are still many cases out there and a lot of families that remain very, very scared for good reason. But the trajectory of the case count has been solid. The vaccine news that we have gotten seems to have been pretty good as well. Tie that to the economy. Tie that to the equity market. Brian, you're absolutely right. The, the, the case counts are falling and the, the backdrop is uh, becoming uh, more manageable, particularly for what we were seeing, I think, earlier this year and late last year. And ultimately, what investors are looking for is the economy to reopen and consumers to venture back out. And as that begins to happen, we're going to see GDP continue to accelerate. Consumers have wallets that are um, very flush with the stimulus packages that have been put into place, and they are looking to really get out there and consume services and 
really, you know, revisit the places they haven't been in a while. And, and I think that really provides a, a lot of extra momentum to, to an already good economy right now. Yeah, the economy actually maybe, you know, I've had this thesis, Patrick, for a while, just as somebody who has been one of the few people that has been on the road, the economy underlying sounds ridiculous, maybe doing a little bit better than we think outside of hospitality, travel and small business, which, by the way, is a huge part of the economy. I understand that. Do you think the market is pricing in 4% GDP growth, 3%? and Or does GDP growth, Patrick, not even matter because the metrics are so far past the way we have to look at coming out of this pandemic and, and widespread lockdowns? Well, GDP is ultimately what we care about. I think the unfortunate uh, reality with GDP is it's, it's just reported infrequently. And I think when you look at areas like inflation expectations and interest rates, both of which have been rising. Uh, high yield spreads is another one which are really low. All of those really point to continued economic strength. And that's why we're seeing days where, uh, for instance, the 10-year yield is going up by, by a, a few basis points to five basis points in, in any given day. And, and why we've seen so much um, recent rise in interest rates is because they're, they're really responding to the backdrop, which is improving. And GDP will ultimately show that. When, we, when you look at a consensus estimates, you know, for the full year, real just real GDP estimates are around five percent. That is a, a tremendous number, particularly in the context of what we've seen over the past thirty years. So we, we don't want to take away from that. But look at the real time indicators. Um, you know, the interest rates, the price of commodities, all of which point to very very strong backdrop for for commodities and and, and for rates in the economy. Yeah, and and commodities look like as some have said that they might be in the beginning of a super cycle. Certainly, they have been extremely strong to begin the year. Is there any market, leave us with some opportunity, Patrick, is there any market that you and your colleagues at Credit Suisse see as still being undervalued, fairly valued, just a good bargain for our viewers' dollars at this 5-whatever, 10 in the morning it is on a Monday? Well, right now, uh, you know, your, your economically sensitive groups are absolutely the way to play this. Uh, financials within that is one of our favorite. Uh, they, they remain incredibly cheap relative to the market and relative to where they have been historically interest rates are going to continue to move up, and they are a direct beneficiary of that. And and on top of that, with credit uh, risk so low right now, um, the reserves look quite strong. So financials is an area we would be particularly focused on. But but anything economically sensitive is going to do well here. Patrick Palfrey, Credit Suisse. Patrick, good to have you on on this Monday morning. Thanks to you, and uh, have a great day. Talk to you soon. All right, on deck, more on the COVID vaccine rollout and how much the freezing weather across most of America may have set us back. Plus, the Biden administration announcing new steps to help struggling small businesses try to stay afloat. We'll speak with the head of the Small Business Roundtable on whether the plan goes far enough. And retail in focus, Dana Telsey is here. She'll lay out the key earnings reports to watch in a very, very busy week for the group. We've got a very busy hour still ahead. Worldwide Exchange rolls on. Dow Futures down 174. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange and good Monday, wherever you might be. It is time now for your daily vaccine update. Well, we lay out exactly where we stand as a nation. Here is the latest CDC data. Overall, 75 million doses of the vaccines have been delivered. About 63 million of those have been administered. 43.5 million people have received at least one dose. Over 18 million have had both doses. That brings the total percentage of U.S. adults getting at least one shot at about 17%. And remember, all the data showing that even one shot of either Pfizer or Moderna reported to have perhaps as much as 80% or more effectiveness. That flu shot you likely get every year and don't even think about it, it's actually only about 60% effective. Right now, the United States is the most vaccinated large nation in the world. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, mortgage rates on the rise. So what happens to the red-hot real estate market? Diana Olick is here and will lay it out. But first, February is Black History Month, and we are honoring some of our CNBC friends, contributors, and colleagues. And here is New England Patriots linebacker Brandon Copeland with his advice for the next generation. My advice to the next generation of black Americans is to not wait for this information, but be proactive in seeking it out. Take ownership of your financial education so that you can change not only your life, but your family's life for the better. Oh, yeah, yeah. Baby. Baby. Nice. (laughs) You just killed that. Good job, buddy. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. We've got some breaking news right now in the push to help America's small businesses. The Biden administration announcing new policies to help small business owners who've been struggling to stay open. Kayla Tausche joining us now with more from Washington on this developing story. Kayla. 
Hey, Brian, the White House and the Small Business Administration are making some tweaks to the Paycheck Protection Program to allow smaller businesses and minority-owned businesses to move up the queue with lenders. One of the first changes is an exclusive two-week period beginning this Wednesday and going until March 9th, where the SBA will only accept applications from businesses with fewer than 20 employees. The administration will also change the funding formula for sole proprietors and self-employed individuals and allocate a billion dollars for low-income areas. And beginning the first week of March, the administration is opening up loans to three types of business owners that had previously been excluded, those with prior non-fraud felony charges, those with federal student loans that are delinquent, and non-citizens that have a taxpayer ID. Now, administration officials say these changes would remain in effect under the American Rescue Plan if Congress were to pass it. And the White House's view is not necessarily that these programs need a lot more money, but that they need some changes to affect the type of people who are actually qualifying and who are able to rise to the top of the queue to get these loans. The administration's plan that is currently being considered by the House of Representatives would only add about $7 billion to the existing PPP program. Remember, Congress reauthorized about $285 billion in PPP loans at the end of last year, the White House says only about $130 billion, or less than half of that, has been allocated so far. Applications are accepted until March 31st, and a determination will be made after that whether uh, that window should be extended, Brian. Kayla, do we have any idea why seemingly fewer businesses have taken aid this time around? Well, I think there are a few reasons, Brian, but notably, when Congress passed this reauthorization of PPP at the end of last year, they put a lot of new restrictions in place as to who could actually qualify for these loans. You had to have fewer than 300 employees. You had to show that your gross receipts for your business were down at least 25 percent in that same period. And so they were trying to create a dynamic where it wasn't the free-for-all that we saw this spring, where the money was drying up nearly immediately, and a lot of businesses who didn't necessarily need the money ended up qualifying and just getting it by default. Uh, they wanted to create a scenario where it wasn't just viewed as free money for every single business, but the dynamic is a lot of businesses are making the calculation that maybe the paperwork is a little bit too strenuous to fill out. Maybe they should just hold tight and, and see if the economy starts recovering a little bit sooner, Brian. All right, Kayla Tausche on that story in small business. Kayla, thank you very much. So these new policies by the White House come as small business owners continue to try to navigate the pandemic nearly a year in. According to a report published by the Small Business Roundtable in Facebook, at least 25 percent of American small businesses has closed as of the end of last year. That's down from 31 percent in April at the height of the lockdowns, but still represents a significant drop compared to the year before. For more now on this, we're joined by John Stanford. He is co-executive director of the Small Business Roundtable. John, uh, thank you for, for joining us. Many of our viewers, they'll just go through their town. Wherever they live in the United States, they'll notice that retail shops that used to be there are gone. Um, do you see a brighter future in the next year or so? Is there any indications that small, as the economies reopen, small business will be able to come back? Well, thanks for having me, Brian. It's a great question. We remain at Small Business Roundtable tremendously bullish on the small business community. There is no doubt that there will be a bounce back. That's the spirit of American entrepreneurship. But it is a tough road ahead. You mentioned the report we recently released, and we found that 
a significant portion of small business owners think it's going to take six months at least from today to really bounce back and to begin opening up and bringing back revenues. So we know that small businesses will recover. But many of the points that Kayla made about what the government can do to be helping out are really important because it's going to be a tough road ahead. But we are confident that when the economy totally reopens, that small businesses will be there on Main Street. But also, importantly, something we found in this report, so many of them will have also adapted and moved online. One of the more compelling statistics from this report I found was that only 13 percent of small businesses are not using digital tools to increase their sales. So that means the vast majority of small businesses have found a way to also move their entrepreneurship online. And I think that's an incredibly telling detail about where we'll be going. Yeah, that's pretty incredible there and and helping them compete. I mean, I guess that's, John, the question is, you know, in large parts of America, the only things open at the beginning of the pandemic were big box stores, basically government mandated shutdowns of all but a few essential stores, because we were learning a lot about what exactly was happening during those terrifying first few weeks and months. Have small businesses been able to recover from that or have we become, I hope not, that we've become just a big box store slash Amazon world? I think it depends on the industry. I think some industries have found a way to be resilient online, um, but I think there are others, retail, restaurants in particular. We're really hopeful that the American Rescue Plan and what's going through Congress now can incorporate some of the provisions of the Rescue Act and really expand support for the restaurant industry, because that's one that you simply uh, can't necessarily take online. There are others, smaller professional services that have found working remote and working online can continue to function. And I think uh, to Kayla's point earlier about why we may not be seeing as much of a drawdown on PPP uh, this time around is because some of those businesses may not have the revenue declines to qualify for that policy. But then we have a whole segment of businesses in retail and restaurant and others, specifics in construction or types of personal health care yeah. that simply have been shut down for a year. Well, I mean, and that's John. And I put this on my, I think I wrote a little piece on LinkedIn recently about this. I don't understand these blunt instrument sort of cutoffs, not just for this, but for stimulus. You're going to get a $1,400 check if you make less than this. If you make a dollar more, you won't. You know, we talk about 300 person businesses down 25%. If you're down 24%, you're not getting a thing. I mean, how I understand there's got to be some metrics, but it seems just honestly stupid to have these hard cutoffs where if you did this and you're 1% above it, you're not going to get it. Are you guys pushing back to try to make it a little more malleable for companies and small businesses that are probably just ticked off? They may miss one of these key points by by fractions. I, I think you call out something that's really important is we need to have smoothing in these programs um, and, and something where you're exactly right. If you're just slightly too large or your revenues drop just slightly too little, um, that all of a sudden you don't qualify for these programs. Um, I think that's something we are trying to address. The other thing we're trying to put in front of policymakers is you can't put a cliff on these things. We saw the damage that arbitrary cutoff dates did in the first PPP program, and it really hurt women. It really hurt minority-owned businesses. And we know that there was no reason to need to do that. And so this time around, we're telling Congress, don't just pick a date 
and say, this program is going to end this date. There is going to be pain in parts of America for years to come. And small businesses are going to feel that pain. And so not only should we not have these arbitrary end dates, if there's money in the program, we need to leave the doors open. We need to make sure that these this infrastructure for entrepreneurship yeah. is here for a, a while to come. And you're absolutely right. These, these yeah. cutoffs hurt small businesses. Well, it's not just that, but the, the, the personal stimulus checks are based on 2019 income. I mean, if you got whacked in 2020, but did okay in 2019, you may not get a check. I understand there's got to be some metrics, but to your point, John, and I guess to my point as well, you got to try to figure out a way to make it a little more flexible and not have these weird, hard cutoffs. John Stanford, Small Business Roundtable. John, appreciate it. Have a good day. Keep on fighting, buddy. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. All right, still on deck. The latest on that developing story involving a Boeing jet. Boeing grounding a number of its 777s after one of the planes suffers, look at that, a scary mid-air engine blowout and rain parts on a Colorado neighborhood. And a reminder, if you have not already, subscribe to our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange any day for any reason, that's okay. We're not upset. But you should still listen as a podcast. It's called Worldwide Exchange. There it is. Apple, Spotify, other podcasting platforms. Down, Plied Open, down 165. We're back after this. Stimulus on steroids. Congress set to debate the nearly $2 trillion spending plan as some think a deal could come as soon as this week. Grounded again. Boeing facing heat after a 777 jumbo jet rained engine parts over a Colorado. The plane landed safely, but regulators have questions. Look at that. Oh. And Home Depot and Macy's kicking off a wild week of retail. A closer look at the health of the consumer and your money with Dana Telsey. It is Monday, February 22nd, and this is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Well, welcome or welcome back. I'm Brian Sullivan. Good Monday morning, wherever you may be. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get a check on your Monday money. Futures, they are down. Dow futures off about 160 points. Now, the Dow is coming off its 13th all-time intraday high of the year on Friday. But watch the broader market. The S&P 500 kind of quietly on a four-session losing streak. Something to watch there. Also keep an eye on crude oil. This as Texas slowly puts itself back together. After the winter crisis last week, there are still thousands, by the way, without power. The White House sending aid. A lot of oil production went offline as well. Remember, you need electricity to often run the oil wells and the oil pumps. From crude to crypto, Bitcoin coming off yet another fresh record high over the weekend, extending its two-month rally. Bitcoin has basically doubled just this year. But watch out, because one Mr. Elon Musk says the price may seem a bit too high, LOL. That's actually his term. That's his tweet. That said, Bitcoin and Ether do seem high, LOL, at 2.02 in the morning. And in bonds, Treasury yields continue their slow tick higher. Inflation concerns starting to creep in just a bit as the commodities market booms across pretty much any commodity you name. The 10-year yield is now at 1.36%. For context... That yield was just 0.5% at the height of the concerns and fears last summer. Put another way, 
10-year bond yields up 136% in just six months. All right, let's get right now to that developing story we are watching this morning. Boeing grounding a number of its 777 wide-body jets. Bertha Coombs now is back with more on this. Bertha. Hey, good morning again, Brian. That's right. Boeing telling its customers to stop flying certain 777 aircrafts equipped with the same type of engine that broke apart during a flight this past weekend over Denver. The company's recommendation comes after action by U.S. and Japanese regulators calling for investigations into the jets and the Pratt & Whitney engines found on 128 of Boeing 777s. The United Airlines flight Saturday was the third failure involving that model plane with those particular engines in recent years. In a statement, Boeing says it is actively monitoring recent events related to United Airlines Flight 328, adding it supports the decision uh, Saturday by the Japan Civil Aviation Bureau and the FAA's action to suspend operations of 777 aircrafts powered by Pratt & Whitney 4,112 engines. Shares of Boeing and United this morning in the pre-market are split. Boeing down 3.5%. United is flat there. That is an amazing video, isn't it, Brian? You know, I, I was watching that video over and over. You know, it's, I'm actually going to be flying on Wednesday myself, and I fly, I, you know, fly. You, you, you always think, like, it's not going to happen to me, and I just wonder, what's it like to be sitting in that seat? I actually was over the English it, it's Channel. It's like that episode of The Twilight ago, Zone. And we had to dump fuel. We had some problem. They never told us. Yeah. We had to dump fuel, and that plane was as quiet as a church mouse for a couple hours until we landed. I'm so happy. That is such a scary scene right there. Look at that. Yeah. Definitely. It's, it's like something out of a, a really bad movie. Thank goodness no one was hurt. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And then, I mean, that massive part from the engine falling in that, in that family's front yard, if it would have landed on the house, would have been much worse. It's, it's just wonderful. Nobody was injured. And, and when they, I don't know if you saw the video when they landed, Bertha, of course. I mean, everybody's, you know, hooting and hollering and clapping. I, I might be doing a little crying, but I'm, I'm a coward. So Bertha, Bertha Coombs, that's a, a scary story, but it ended on a positive Bertha, a dramatic video. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was scary, folks. And uh, great, by the way, great job to the pilots landing that plane as well. You could say that engine was really shaking. All right. Right now to Capitol Hill, where lawmakers are preparing to debate the Biden administration's proposed $1.9 trillion spending plan, one that could send $1,400 checks to qualifying Americans. Passage could happen as soon as this week, although some Republicans still have concerns over the cost. Elon Moy joining us now with more on exactly where we stand. So, Elon... Exactly where do we stand? Well, Brian, Democrats have a problem now because the new COVID relief package is officially over budget. Now, under the special rules that Democrats are using to pass this bill, the cost should be capped at $1.9 trillion, or to be exact, $1,889,000,000,000. But over the weekend, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office estimated that the price tag is a little more than that, $1,920,000,000,000 to be exact. In other words, Democrats could have to shave as much as $30,000,000,000 off of their plan 
or risk losing the bill's special fast-track privileges. Now, there is still time to make changes. The House Budget Committee is set to start considering the bill this afternoon. It's slated to get a vote on the House floor sometime later this week. Lawmakers could make some tweaks to the bill then, but more substantive changes could happen in the Senate, where the chamber still has to write its own version of the bill. Now, one quick way to fix the numbers would be to drop the increase in the minimum wage. That's expected to add $54 billion to the deficit over the next decade, a much higher number than Democrats had expected. Politically, though, that could be problematic. Progressives have celebrated the increase in the wage as one of the priorities in the new COVID relief package. But, Brian, something here is going to have to give. Back to you. Okay, well, talk to us about where that horse trading may be. What kind of trade-offs could there be in the package to try to bring down the cost? Well, they've already made one, which is reducing the length of enhanced unemployment benefits. So they had hoped that that could continue through the month of September. Now it's only going to continue through August so they could make room for pension relief. So that's just one example of the kinds of policies that are getting tweaked here in order to meet that $1.9 trillion number. Another way that Republicans say uh, that Democrats could fix this would be to further target those $1,400 stimulus checks. President Biden has made it very clear that the size of the check would not change, but that he has been open to further targeting who should receive it. Mm -hmm. And and Alana, I'll put you on the spot here. Listen, I know there's a lot of working families, like, by the way, like, like yourself, uh, and the school reopen debate is front and center. There's 170 billion in this that is proposed, I believe, to schools. And and listen, the the political dialogue is we need the money to reopen, but we've seen a lot of stuff about when the money would get paid out. It actually stretches out over five or ten years. Do we know when the first amount of if we're talking about reopening the schools soon? Do we know when the money would actually go? Because I'm thinking if you're going to put in a new filtration system, when would that be done? Like. Next year, when would the money get paid out so we can get the kids back in school? Do we know? Yeah, so part of at least the budgetary problem is that the money from the last COVID relief package that was passed at the end of last year, that's getting paid out now. And so schools are just starting to spend that. The other issue is that if you're going to put in some sort of capital improvement like a new HVAC system, that is a cost that could continue for some years. And so that's why you see um, schools getting money for several years and that spend out continuing for several years uh, because of some of these larger improvements. Now, the Congressional Budget Office says it's going to take time for the school systems to spend this out. That's why they've pushed out some of these forecasts. But certainly that becomes a talking point for Republicans who say, well, that doesn't help us now if you're looking at spending money five years down the road. Well, listen, it's a talking point for parents. I think, you know, we're being we're being told it's to reopen schools, which is great. I'm glad they're getting money now. But let's be clear, if you're not going to get that new air filtration system until 2024 or whatever, because the money's not there or the contractor's not there or the parts aren't there, let's just be honest and say, but by the way, let's prep for for the next pandemic. Hopefully there won't be one, but you don't know. And we hear a lot that there might be. So get it done for the future. But let's be honest with the working families because they you know what I'm talking about. We need the kids in school safely, by the way, for for everybody. Our school is opening t- tomorrow for the first time since the pandemic. So we're one of the last school systems Wait, so, to open. Brian. So, we're, OK, hold on. A little. I don't don't reveal anything personal if you don't want to. Uh, when's the last time your kids or some of them were in school physically? March 12th of 2020. Been almost a year. 
since they've stepped foot in the school. And they open, we they go back tomorrow. We took pictures out in front of the school. Yeah, they go back yeah. tomorrow. Well, you know what? It's, uh, I'm glad they're going back. Ever, hopefully everybody's going to be safe. Uh, Elon, uh, that's a long journey. And, and we, you know, listen, you got a house full of family there. I, I don't know how you do it, but uh, God bless you. Elon Moy, thank you very much. All right, not since March. All right, from relief to retail, a mall full of retailers out with their results this week. And whether it's COVID-related costs, wage hikes, or inventory maybe stuck on a ship, because that container shortage that we told you about in South Carolina two weeks ago, many of these companies are dealing with more challenges than you might expect. Are there any good companies still to invest in right now? Joining us is Telsey Advisory Group CEO and Chief Research Officer, Dana Telsey. Dana, uh, there, you know, we were in South Carolina a couple weeks ago talking about this, this shipping container shortage. And people are like, why do we care about this? Your retailers care. I mean, there's an inventory crunch out there, is there not? You're right. There is an inventory crunch, Brian. Thank you for having me. It's basically taking, could be up to two weeks to get goods from the containers to the ports. And then let's not forget trucker availability to get goods driven from the ports to the warehouses. And we have Easter coming up in early April this year. So they're going to be need to get new goods in, whether for buying in store or for shipping for online. So what are they telling you, Dana? I mean, you, you need to have the goods to sell to the people, whether it's online or in the stores. Uh, is this going to crimp? Maybe not earnings, but is it going to crimp guidance? I think overall, I don't think a lot of companies can give guidance when they report numbers over the next two weeks. Mm. I think the uncertainty of what COVID's doing is still preventing that. I think the topic of discussion is going to be, what does the recovery look like in getting back towards anywhere near 2019 earnings levels? Companies cut expenses. They adjusted, certainly, their inventory levels. You have the pressures of wages and freight that are there, but you also reduce some of the occupancy costs. So what are you going to do in order to hit those 2019 levels? And what you may see is that 2021 is a transition year towards recovery in 2022. You know, almost every retail stock is up in the past year, except for Macy's. They're down 7% in the past 12 months. They report tomorrow. I, I don't want to pick on Macy's. They had problems before COVID. Uh, is there any value here in this, in this equity? It's one of the few names that's in the red on my screens, Dana. We've seen some of the big laggards perform. And part of the reason why is they did cut expenses. You're going to have a 90-minute earnings call tomorrow with an update on their Polaris strategy. You're going to continue to hear about the curation of brands, e-commerce, and frankly, what they can do with sales recovery. Keep in mind that you have, whether it's Macy's on 34th Street or Bloomingdale's or urban area stores where the traffic is lacking. Did the e-commerce penetration make up for it? And what have you been able to do on the expense side? There's value in Macy's, but there's always value at a price. And what can they see in the recovery of earnings will be the direction there. You certainly have seen some movement today in what you've seen with Kohl's, given that that's moved a mm -hmm. lot lately because it's off-mall. We're getting pressure from the on-mall retailers where there's been a lack of traffic. Dana Telsey, Telsey Advisory Group. we got Home Depot tomorrow. we got Macy's tomorrow. Lowe's on what well, you're going to be very busy this week, Dana. So we appreciate you making a little time for us here on our corner of the business TV world. Dana, have a great day and a good week. Thank you very much. Thank you. You too. All right. Coming up, are there some concerns starting to pop up in this red-hot housing market? Mortgage rates, they're ticking up. Is that going to slow down 
the housing market. Diana Olick is here on what you can expect from that spring selling season. Stick around. Dow futures down one seven. Today's big number, $1.2 trillion. That was the total value of newly originated mortgages, which includes refinances at the end of December, a new record. That topped the previous record volumes seen during the refinance boom of 2003. Wow. 1.2. You know, we say time for the big number. That's a big number. $1.2 trillion is huge. But consumers could soon be taking their foot off the real estate accelerator. Maybe. Diana Olick joining us now with why. Diana. Well, that's right, Brian. That's because mortgage rates rose last week more than in any other week in the past year. And that's because of a big jump in the yield on the 10-year Treasury. Now, mortgage rates hadn't been tracking the 10-year all that closely in the past year. That's because of unusual issues relating to the pandemic, of course. But last week, it was just too much when the 10-year spiked and mortgage rates have now broken out of their safety zone. Take a look. After hitting a low of 2.75% at the end of January, the average rate on the 30-year fixed ended Friday just over 3%, and that's according to Mortgage News Daily. So let's say you wanted a $300,000 mortgage at the end of January, but you waited until this week. Well, you're now looking at a bigger monthly payment, more than $50 a month more. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but the bigger the mortgage, the bigger the difference. And home prices are accelerating at the fastest pace in more than six years. Now, prices were up over 9% in December, year over year, according to CoreLogic. Compare that to just 4% annual price gains two years ago. Prices have been juiced not just by high demand and low supply, but also by these record low mortgage rates. The lower the rate, of course, the more home that you can afford. Competition has been extremely fierce for the limited supply, leading to bidding wars for more than half of all properties sold in January. That's according to Redfin. Now, homes are also going under contract at a record fast pace, less yeah. than half the time a year than a year ago. So what does this mean going forward? Affordability will weaken further, Brian. Amazing. A buddy of mine re rehab flips homes in Clearwater, Florida. His last house, I think he said he had 20 offers, all sight unseen, all sort of bidding above each other. Could it actually be a good thing if prices cool off? We lost Diana. Where'd she go? Now we have her back. You were you were lost, Diana, <laughs> but now you're found. It sounds Don't like you a love song. Technology. Would it be love a, it? Sorry about where'd that. Where'd she go? <laughs> I stepped would it be out. a good it would thing? Be a great no, thing. Don't apologize. Yeah, yeah, because it's just getting a little, little ridiculous. No? Hot? Yeah, it would actually be a great thing if prices were to cool off a little bit because affordability has just been really tough, especially on the low end of the market where the supply is so limited. And that's where your all-important first-time home buyers live, and you don't want to keep them sidelined in markets like this. So if prices were to cool off a little bit, it would not be the worst thing. Diana Olick, we're glad you're found. And we're glad you're on this story. Diana, thank you. All right, on deck. Call them maybe underdogs. We're going to reveal the two hottest stocks so far in 2021. It's your morning RBI, and that video has something to do with what we're talking about. And a reminder, if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast on all the podcasting platforms. The podcast ingeniously labeled Worldwide Exchange. Look for it today. We're back right after this. 
It is time now for your morning RBI. And today it's about TV or rather TV stocks, because for all the talk about TV being toast, the market says otherwise. Look at this. So far in 2021, there have been a few really hot stocks. Many of them are oil and gas names pumped up by rising prices and high short interest. But the two hottest stocks of the year, one and two, are good old-fashioned TV companies, Discovery and Viacom CBS. Discovery, which actually has two equities, and Viacom are both up 68% this year and are the top two stocks in the S&P 500. In fact, they're so hot, they're 17% better than the third best stock in the S&P 500. That's, by the way, Occidental Petroleum. Okay, even they might argue they're more than just TV companies. But hey, they produce and make video programs at the core of it. Whether they're on traditional cable or streaming, the markets don't care. Apparently, TV is the new TV. Random, but interesting. And by the way, a programming note, Discovery CEO David Zaslov will be coming up live on Squawk Box later on this morning. In Squawk Box, I give you express rights to use my RBI in that interview, should you wish. I retain 30% of all revenues. Well, she may not be into TV stocks, but your next guest has some out-of-the-box ideas that could help you make some money on this Monday morning and hopefully pass that. Let's bring in Tiffany McGee, CEO and CIO of Pivotal Advisors and a CNBC contributor. So, Tiffany, you're not one of those who's levered up three times to buy shares of TV companies? I am not, Brian. Good morning. How are you? I'd be better Uh, if the snow was off the ground and it was 80 degrees, but otherwise, okay. Tiffany, how are you? (laughs) I'm good, thanks. Yeah, no, I, I am I am not purchasing TV companies right now. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I am gonna. Uh, I know there are a lot of people that are that are buying Bitcoin these days. So um, uh, I, I really wanted to just talk about how I'm thinking about Bitcoin. And I think that you know that there's there's so much chatter about it, and I think we can really look at this from two different perspectives. So from the point of view first um, uh, of a retail investor and then an institutional investor. And so if I'm a retail investor, I'm the, the first thing I'm at, the first question I'm asking myself is, you know, can, can, uh, can I make money with Bitcoin? And the first, you know, and the answer to that question is yes. And also, can I lose money? And the answer, of course, is yes. Um, but I think equally relevant, um, an equally well, relevant question is how, is how do I make money or lose money? And I think this is where institutional investors kind of enter here and um, yeah. really are having um, a bit of a, um, are, are really asking questions. I really don't think institutional investors like my clients, pensions and, and, and large foundations really understand um, Bitcoin or blockchain, yeah. blockchain technology. You know? Well, and, you know, um, and that's <laughs> Tiffany, that's that's part of the pro- Tiffany. That's part of the problem, is it not? Because the idea is that mm-hmm. if you question Bitcoin at all, you're automatically labeled as a as a ding dong or old. Right. You don't get it. You just don't right. understand it. And so you can't even have a discussion without people just wanting to shout you down that you don't understand the future of money. Right. Absolutely. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, is it an asset or is it currency? Right. So it's a name suggests currency, but really so far it functions more like an asset. And so from an institutional investor standpoint, and you're absolutely correct. People, you know, people get really, really excited about it. But first of all, Google it and see if you come up with, see if you find it um, a really clear explanation. Or talk to someone and see if they can see if they give you an explanation that's really really easy to understand, in which you think that they understand it. 
But, you know, you you diversify your portfolio to do two different things, generate alpha or mitigate risk. You know, and and you need to know how. Well, it's it's Tiffany. Listen, I'm glad we're having the combo. We got to go. Unfortunately, time is tight, but you're exactly right. And we need to have these conversations because a lot of money is on the line. Tiffany McGee, Pivotal Advisors. Tiffany, have a great day. And by the way, before we wrap it up today, I want to say a very happy birthday to a very special person in my life, Mom. Happy 80. I haven't I haven't seen you since last Christmas, 2019. You got your second vaccination dose. I think today is coming. So I'm coming down to see you in Virginia. And uh, I love you, Mom. Happy 84th birthday. Squawk Box is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.